Well, I invite you then to open your Bibles to the book of Romans for the very last time. Not really the last time, but in some regards, the, the last time. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible, just encourage you, print Bible, um, <clears throat> page 951 of your pew Bibles. The title of my message this morning is entitled, The End of Romans, um, because we are reaching the end Um, It's the end of our exposition of this uh, marvelous book of the Bible. We began three years ago. We began uh, September 4th, 2016, with Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. And uh, now three years and 95 messages later. Are we flicking here? No, we're good. Three years, 95 messages later, um, we're going to deal with the very last section of the book of Romans. Um, for some of you children, it's interesting that uh, we had dinner last night and David was just saying, Dad, I think all I remember you preaching on ever is the book of Romans. And he just turned 12 this week. So just think about it when he was three, four and five he was in the nursery and and age, whatever, six, seven, eight, nine is in children's church. And so some of the other children might have that experience as well. Is it just these last three years, you were on David's age, maybe all you have heard me preach on is the book of Romans. Um, well, know that it's going to change. We're going to be looking at Proverbs, which especially for the kids is helpful, as it's a book really aimed for helping children, helping young people. It's written really for you, um, youth in our midst. So I'm, I'm really excited about that, just praying that God would raise up wise boys and girls in our midst. It also helps you parents to know what it is you should be teaching them and training them and prioritizing uh, of them. And uh, when we get to that, we are are going to have a different logo than this logo. And so this one maybe has been on your mind. You kind of delve it in there. You kind of think about, okay, what Romans is about. It's about, you know, sin, salvation, sanctification, security, sovereignty, and service. That's in your mind. Well, we're going to have a new one for Romans, but you'll have to wait on that because I'm waiting on that as well. But it's going to be <laughs> developed. Here we go. Romans 16, 21 through 27. Paul's final counsel to those in Rome. He says this. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And my first point is simply this. It's greetings. Greetings. Paul gives greetings in these uh, first few verses of the chapter. I'm sorry, he gave his his greetings the first 15 verses of the chapter. And now in these last three uh, it's an opportunity for those who are with Paul to do the same. There, there are eight names mentioned here. There's Timothy, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater in verse 21. Tertius is in verse 22. And Gaius, Erastus, and Cordus are in verse 23. Of these men, we know very little. Except we know a bit about Timothy. We, in fact, we know a lot about him. Paul wrote 
1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to him. Um, Paul met him when he was on his second missionary journey, when he came to this uh, town called Lystra. Lystra was where Timothy was living. Perhaps that's where he was born. That's perhaps where he was raised. He was known as a, a godly man who was following the faith of his mother and grandmother. And, and Paul immediately discerned this man's character um, and his ability for ministry and took him along right on the ministry. He's he on the mission field traveling about. He said, Timothy, come and join us. And Timothy joined him and proved to be a, a faithful man, proved to be an integral part of what Paul was doing. When things got difficult in Berea, Paul left, but let, left Timothy and Silas in charge to try to try to figure things out there. And when Paul came to, to Corinth um, and, and Timothy finally linked back up with him, Timothy worked hard for him to free Paul up so that he wouldn't have to work. So basically he could devote all his time to the ministry of the word, preaching to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Timothy was precious to Paul. He considered him his son, a man in whom Paul had complete confidence. Towards the end of his life, he's in prison awaiting execution, and he pleaded for Timothy to come. He said, 2 Timothy 4, 9, do your best to come to me soon. You kind of feel the urgency just even in his heart and in his mind. Just, just come, come. And he says, when you come, bring my cloak, because he was probably cold. He needed this coat. And bring the books, including the scriptures. But I think what Paul longed for when he asked Timothy to come soon, if at all possible, quickly, as much as he could, is that he wanted Timothy right there with him. And perhaps Timothy made it there before he, he died, before he was executed, his head chopped off there in Rome. And when Paul wrote Romans, Timothy was right there by his side. And how good for the Apostle Paul. Well, regarding other names, in verse 21 through 23, we know little. Regarding Lucius, we do know that Lucius was with Paul in Rome when he wrote. But that's about all that we know. Some say this was maybe Luke who wrote the book of Acts, just a different variant in spelling, just like uh, Priscilla and Aquila was in chapter 16, verse 3. But mm, that's doubtful. Maybe, probably not. Uh, regarding Jason, again, all we know is this, he was with Paul when he wrote. There were uh, another Jason, as mentioned in Acts 17, who was Paul's host in Thessalonica, but Jason's such a common name to link those Jasons is difficult to know for sure. So Sipiter, it's probably mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4, but all we learn from there is that he is from Berea. We don't know much. All we know is that these men were with Paul. And as we go through even these other men, just I think a, a big lesson for us is that that ministry is a, a team effort. You know, we might think of the Apostle Paul as lifted up and him doing his own thing. But think about it. He's gathered around himself eight men to help in the ministry to do what it is that he's doing. And so likewise, for Rock Valley Bible Church carry on, it's far more than just my work. It is a team of us who need to carry on, whether that's vacation Bible school, whether it's any other ministries, whether it's other things that take place we need to be a team to see Rock Valley Bible Church go. And, and we just that's a, a little lesson that we, we see here. But when we get to Tertius mentioned in verse 22, it gets interesting. Because in verse 22, it says that he wrote this letter. Now, the best explanation is he's probably a, a secretary. If you want to use the theological term, you want to use this word amensuous. Um, amanuensis, rather. Like your theologians, right? When you're reading some kind of book, amanuensis is what it means, secretary. It means he's, he's writing it down. Now, Romans was clearly written by the Apostle Paul. He identified himself in the first chapter of the, verse of the book, the very first verse. He calls himself the very first word of the book of Romans is this, Paul. 
Paul wrote it. He, furthermore, the biographical information in chapter 1, chapter 15 and 16 can only be the Apostle Paul. But, but Paul didn't actually write down the words of this book. He didn't actually write down the letter that Phoebe would deliver to Rome. Tertius did. Say, why is that? Well, maybe Paul had bad handwriting. Probably, probably not, okay? Um, makes a great trivia question. Who wrote Romans? Exactly. Now, this wasn't the only time Paul had a secretary. Uh, at the end of several of his letters, it seems as if he was dictating, and he took the pen out of the, the writing of the, the secretary, and he wrote it down. First Corinthians ends that way. Paul writes, look, I'm, I'm writing to you with my own hand. In Galatians and Colossians and First Thess- Second Thessalonians and Philemon all end this way. And in fact, even in Second Thessalonians three seventeen, Paul writes that the writing the greeting in his own hand was a sign of the genuineness of every letter of mine, like that he would write it in his own hand. But here, Tertius keeps the pen, doesn't let Paul have it because maybe Paul had it in some in chapter sixteen. We're not exactly sure, but but Tertius just even wrote, inserted in there that Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. How many authors were there in the New Testament? Not very often that Tertius is mentioned, but at least he wrote one verse. It's interesting you think about the inspiration of, of Scripture. Just God was working, Tertius writes the letter, and we get to know who it is. Well, we see from the final greeting and then verse 23 that Again, these three people, Gaius, Erastus, and Cordus, we, all we know is that they were with Paul in this ministry together. Gaius was apparently the home where Paul was staying. And apparently in the home of Gaius, there was this church that was gathering together. Uh, Erastus, known as a, a man of high standing, he's the, the city treasurer. There is a, an external secular link to an Erastus who, who did something in, in Ephesus, I think or Corinth maybe, and just built something. But again, it's difficult to know whether that's who it was. Cordus, whoever he is, had some connection with Rome. Maybe that's why he mentioned him. Not exactly sure, but all eight of them send their greetings to Rome. You say, what's the point of these greetings? And and here they are. I I think it's an expression of kindness. It's an expression of grace. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of goodwill. I think the fact that they would would encourage Paul to write or encouraging in this. Oh, make sure you say hi. Make sure you, you greet from me. And I'm not sure this is Paul writing and just saying, oh, I think he greets. I think they, they got wind of what Paul's writing here. Or maybe hearing Paul dictate it to Tertius. And they're thinking, oh, when you send that, right, make sure you, you greet them for me, please, will you? And so he's writing all these, these greetings out. They do represent, in a bigger picture, though, a unity of, of churches, that's commendable for us today. I mean, people from one church sending greetings to those in another church. The, the interconnectivity of the early church. The early church were, were independent churches, but they were fiercely interdependent as well. You know, it's a sort of unity we have here, several local churches in the Rockford area, whether it's Morning Star Church or Red Brick Church of Stillman Valley or Mount Morris Evangelical Free Church. We have a relationship with these churches. Because we, we've done ministry together with them. Pastors from each of these churches have been here and preached in this room to us at Rock Valley Bible Church. And should we write a letter to them, we could send greetings in the same way. Because we know them and we pray for them and we care about these churches. Or the unity of, of the men with Paul and the, the Church of Rome is the sort of uh, unity that we share with, uh, with our history. 
starting from Kishwaukee Bible Church, our mother church in DeKalb, or Grace Church of DuPage, our grandmother church in, uh, in uh, Warrenville, in the Chicagoland area. And, and we still have a relationship there, like particularly with Grace Church of DuPage. Like, they help us out every year with Vacation Bible School. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but there, there's a group there at Grace Church of DuPage spends countless hours making these Vacation Bible School sets, which are just beautiful. There's a guy who spearheads this project. His name is Marshall. I don't know his last name, but he, he spearheads this project, makes them ornate. The time they spend on that is, is immense. And we always have our vacation Bible school the week after they have theirs. And so we go and we get their sets that we get to use. It saves us a lot of time, but just this, this combination of, of ministry together. Furthermore, pastors from each of those churches have been here at Rock Valley Bible Church preaching. And should we write a letter to them and send our greetings in the same way? We, we could do that, saying we, we know you, we, we pray for you, we care for you. I'm even thinking about um, when we get chairs here in the auditorium. Um, they're coming in a couple weeks, just right before Vacation Bible School, hopefully. And uh, if they come, then we're going to take the pews out and we're going to take the chairs. Actually, we're not taking them out. Um, there are two Hispanic churches in town that are going to be taking the pews and taking the chairs. In fact, Gary Lundberg told me the story when he was, he was ushering some of the, uh, the people of the church in. Uh, the pastor's wife, and you kept correcting me wrong, Gary, but I think that he, she saw the pews or saw the chairs and started crying. Such happiness and joy to have such wonderful chairs that they're going to have. They have right now, I think, those metal chairs that they sit on, and they're going to get nicer chairs. And so we have an opportunity. I don't even know the names of those churches. Gary, what, do you, what are the names of the churches? Do you know? You don't even know either. Yeah. The Spanish churches. Do you know, Ryan? Okay. Amor de Dios. Love of God. Church. Okay, so, but, you know, we, we barely know that. But that's how things start. They often start with relationships where things just start helping and just start guiding. And then, and then other relationships forge. I don't know if anything will materialize further with our relationship with the Hispanic churches with this. Or it's a one-time deal. I don't know. But there are churches that we know and are, are unified with. Or, or I think also about the, the sort of unity of churches, the Crossway Chapel Network. I mean, we've had pastors from several of those churches come here and preach at Rock Valley Bible Church, whether it's Clark Richardson or Tom Harkis from Crossway Chapel North Aurora have been here, Uh, whether it's Matt Moorhead from Crossway Chapel Wilmington, North Carolina, or Eric Lawyer from Redeemer Fellowship in Tom's River. Uh, just they've been here. We kind of know about them. The, and and, and uh, just even soon, the Mulders and the Weebies are going to go out to what's called the huddle of the, cha- the Crossway Chapel uh, meeting. It's their annual meeting where they, they gather together, pastors and church leaders. They, they huddle together to strengthen relationships and strategize how they can leverage the, the network then to, um, to spread the gospel in our nation and around the world. And, and I'm sure the, the Weebies and the Mulders are going to send their greetings from you to the, the churches who are, are meeting them as well. That's how churches work, right? Relationships just form with others, right? Where, where you can pray for others, you can care for others, you can support others. And these greetings are merely an expression of such care and support from Paul and those who are with them to those who are in Rome. Well, let's move on. We've seen the greetings, and now we're going to see grace. Verse 24. In fact, I didn't even read verse 24 earlier. Because if you have an ESV, 24 isn't even there. Look, it just goes from 23 through 25. If you look down, if you have an ESV down in your footnote, or if you have some other translation of the Bible, you might see it down there. Mine, 
The ESV says some manuscripts insert verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And just the fact that it kind of skips there just reminds me of this, this question that I often ask foreign students. Um, you know, sometimes I say, well, do you have a 4th of July in your, your country? And they say, no, no, we don't have a 4th of July in our country. I said, oh, really? It just goes from like the 3rd to the 5th? It just skips over July 4th? That's what it does here. It just like skips over verse 24. It's, it's because most, most ancient, annu- ancient manuscripts, right? Ancient manuscripts um, don't have this verse. Um, so, so most of them just goes from 23 to 25. Um, verses weren't numbered back then when they were copying out these early manuscripts in, in 200 A.D., 300 A.D., 400 A.D. Um, most of the manuscripts that have a verse 24 are late meaning that they're 5th century, 6th century, something like that. Uh, Furthermore, they're not the best manuscripts. The best manuscripts don't have this verse. Uh, But this verse is there in some, and I I started with a G, so I thought greetings was good and grace was good, and we can mention it. And and it just says says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And the reason why I mention that is just to say that that this is typical of how all um, discrepancies of the Bible are. It's like there's no doubt that verse 24 is true. The doubt is, well, was it really there when Paul wrote it or when Tertius wrote it, rather? Or was it not there? We just don't know. But it's totally true because Paul closes almost all his letters with almost exactly the same phrase. Some variation of this phrase is all of his letters. This is how he does. He says, grace to you at the beginning of the letters and grace um, and peace be with you all. Grace to you at the beginning and grace be with you at the end. That's just kind of how... How we wrote it. We, we often close our letters today with the word sincerely, right? Just a, just a, a way that we end our letters or, or, or love or say affectionately or some other expression that just kind of closes it off. Well, Paul always in his letters said the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And uh, it's certainly true. Nothing changes in Romans regarding its meaning, whether it's there or not. But the meaning here is great. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The meaning is great because grace is great. And grace is at the heart of the gospel. God being gracious to us even when we don't deserve it. God being kind to us despite our not being kind to him. Showing us mercy when we have turned our back from him. But I can talk much about grace, but this comes up in my, my final point this morning, which is glory because that's 25 through 27. We're going to see grace. We're going to see the gospel in here, which is what verse 24 spoke about. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I've called this third point, my last point here, glory, because that's what this is all about. That's how he begins in verse 25. It says, now to him, that is now to God. And then he describes some things about God or, or, or how great he is. Finally, then to pick it up, you have a dash right there before verse 27, dash right to him. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. To God be the glory. 
May God be praised is what this section here is all about. And verses 25 through 26 give us reasons for God's glory. It all has to do with the gospel, what the gospel is, what, what, what the gospel does, what, what the gospel brings, the extent of the gospel and where it goes. Uh, look at verse 25. It says this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, this is why Paul wrote Romans. He wrote it to strengthen those in Rome. This is the end of Romans or this is the goal of Romans. This is what he is getting at to strengthen those in Rome. And in turn, we can be strengthened as well. Fundamentally, this is why I've preached Romans to you is to strengthen you. How? By the gospel. Look again at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Regarding our physical bodies, we exercise to get strong. I mean, the, the key to getting strong is the exercise. How often you do it, um, the, the, the intensity with which you do it, how you do it. I mean, for different things. I mean, if you've got to have an explosion, right? You want to lift weights, then you, you lift a few. If you want to lift over a long time, you lift a, a little bit less. Right? But to get strong, we lift weights. And, and to run a marathon, we run a lot slowly. To sprint, we run a lot fast. Regarding our souls, the gospel is the key to our spiritual strength. Over and over and over again, just like you exercise every day, the gospel is worthy every day to be thought of pondered on. Why do you think it is that Paul was eager to preach the gospel? Why do you think it is? It's because he knew the spiritual good that preaching the gospel would do to those in Rome. In fact, look back at chapter one. Okay, we're going to we're going to zip through Romans a little bit, kind of today, review Romans a little bit. It's our last message. We want to want to capture it all. Back at chapter one, when when Paul begins introducing himself, he says, Paul, he's a servant of Christ called to be an apostle, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And here he talked about, in chapter 1, then going to Rome and preaching the gospel there. And I would strengthen those in Rome. Look at, look at verse 11. I long to see you. I, I long to come to Rome. I, I long to be with you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wanted to be in Rome so as to strengthen them. He wanted them to be spiritually strong. It's my longing for all of you as well. So, Pastor, that's my deep longing that you would be spiritually strong, that when the, the difficulties come upon life, you'll stand through them. That, when, that you'll be strong so that you will be a servant, to be able to serve others out of the overflow of everything that, that you know to be true in Jesus. And, and I long for all of us to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I mean, that's one of the reasons we gather here as a church every Sunday. Mutual encouragement. Spiritual strength. So we might build one another up. We might encourage one another. And the primary way that comes is through the gospel. That's why Paul wrote in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That's the theme verse that we have in Romans. Eager to preach the gospel. It's what he longed to do. Because the gospel is powerful. It strengthens us. In fact, it's able to save us. Look at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 
The, the, the gospel here is strong enough to, to save us and to give us salvation. Now, this, this speaks about, yes, being saved from our sin, but ultimately it's strong enough to sustain us until that final day. Remember in chapter 13, Paul talked about how our, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And I think that's what Paul is fundamentally talking about here in verse 17, 16. It's just about this, this gospel is able to keep us until that final day when we are totally saved and sanctified and wiped clean in the presence of God, never to sin again. And he says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there's the gospel. It comes by faith. The righteous live by faith. The righteous trust by faith. It's all by faith of what we, what we believe. And, and Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome, that the church would be strengthened. He couldn't quite be there yet. He'd been thwarted on several occasions. But here, right before writing Rome, to the, to the Romans, he's sending off to Rome. He's going to go off to, to uh, Jerusalem, and he's going to come back, and he's going to be able to see them finally at long last. And he wanted to preach the gospel to them. Before he preached the gospel to them, though, he wrote the gospel to them. When Paul said, I'm eager to preach the gospel, he talked about how I want to preach to you. I want to preach in Spain. I want you to help me get to Spain because the gospel is so important. It's not just the Jews, as it says in verse 16. It's also the Greek. It's also the Gentiles. This, this expansive vision of the gospel, it's not just for our individual salvation. It's, it's for bigger, broader. It's to go out for the world. You say, what's the gospel? Well, it begins with our sin. That's the first S in our outline is sin. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, God has made himself known to everyone. Every person in this room knows about God, knows, as it says in verse 21, his eternal power, his divine attributes, rather verse 20. God has clearly made himself known to all of us. You just need to go to Rock Cut State Park, walk a walk on the trail, and you'll see God Every place. You just see the glory of God in the trees and the plants and the animals and the water and the sky. Because through creation, God makes himself known. But in our sin, we have suppressed the truth. We've refused to give glory to God. And that's what verse 21 says. Although they knew God, they did not honor him, ask God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They know God exists, but they say, no, he doesn't. I reject that. I reject him. I'm going to walk my own way. And that is so insulting to the Lord. And God is angry. That's what wrath means. God's anger is revealed because he's made himself known and people have rejected. So thank you very much, God. We'll see you later. No thanks. Because they don't even honor him as God. They don't give thanks to him. And so as a result, they're darkened in their sin. They're pursuing after their own sin. And it's true of everyone. It's true of all of us. Jew, Gentile, churchgoer. The one who's never ever stepped foot in a church before. We all are sinful and under the wrath of God apart from the grace of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Here's the conclusion. After talking in chapters 1 and 2 about how Jews are under sin, how Gentiles are under sin, we're all under sin. What then, Paul says, are we Jews better off? Like we Jews, we've got the we've got the scriptures, right? We're in church. We got the Bible. Are we better off than, than people who don't? He says, no, not at all. For we've already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As is written. Quoting Psalm 53 and Psalm 14, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None of us is able to stand before the Lord in our own righteousness. There's none of it. We are all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God is what Romans 3.23 says. But, but the good news comes in chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the wrath of God was revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Chapter 1, verse 18. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what strengthens us. This, this is that by faith alone has been manifest the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus and we obtain righteousness. We aren't righteous by our works. We aren't righteous by our efforts. We aren't righteous because we are good. We are righteous because we what? We, we believe. Chapter 4, Paul really explains that, how going back to Abraham. So this has always been the gospel. In, in all the scriptures, this is what it's always been. Chapter 4, verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. See, when we believe in God, God looks down upon us as if we are righteous. As if we never sinned. As, as if we were Jesus, is what he does. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks about. That, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. It says here, how do we become the righteousness of God? By faith and trust in Christ. And in fact, it's entirely because of God's grace towards us. Entirely God's gift. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted, but it's when it's due. You go to your workplace, you receive your check, you say, thank you very much. It's, it's not because of it was just a gift. It was, it was you labored and they paid you for your labor. That's just how it works. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's like you're going to work. Right? You don't put your work in, but you just believe that your employer is going to be gracious. And your employer then gives you your paycheck. That's what the gospel's like. You're, you're not working for it at all. Right? You, you may show up to work, you might, but you're just believing in your employer. And he gives you your paycheck. And, and then again, it was true of Abraham. It's true of David. Psalm 32, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blesses the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God's not going to count his sin towards those who believe. But if you fail to believe, God's wrath will pour it out on you. But he, just believe is all you got to do. But people reject it. They want to earn it, right? They, they deny God. They say, no, they can't, this can't be. But it's such good news. That's why the gospel means good news. It's just good news that I'm bringing to you. It's good news that Paul did. Or chapter 5, verse 1. This faith with God brings us to peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? Because when we're rebelling against the Lord, when we're following our own ways, when we're not honoring him or giving thanks to him, we don't have peace because he's angry at us. But when we believe, he makes us be at peace with him, makes us be one with him. It's not because we're strong and mighty or 
do good things. No, God saves us in our weakness. Chapter five, verse six and seven. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. The very moment that we were, were sinning is when Christ died for us. He didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. He died for rebels. He died for us. Verse 10 says, while we were his enemies. We were God's enemies. And that's when God reconciled us to himself. We, we had our fists up, ready to punch and fight God. And God, in his love and his grace, just enveloped us. Took our boxing gloves down and brought us together. That's good news. That Christ died in our place and that by faith in him we're righteous before God at peace with him. And then, and only then, catch this, comes a change in our lives. It's called sanctification. And, and this order is important. That belief first and then sanctification or salvation first. And then sanctification. It's not the other way. It's not sanctification first and then salvation. And, and, and so many people think that they need to clean up their lives before God so that they can, they can come to church and clean up so I can come to church so I can come to God. So, so the then, now that I'm, I'm good, then, then God will accept me. It's not how it is. And, and I would say most people who don't come to church, oftentimes that's their belief and that's their perspective. Well, maybe they reject God, but they, they all have a works mentality like, oh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not good enough for God. I, I, you know, I, I just can't go in there, right? I'm, I'm not I'm not holy like you. Well, they need to know the gospel. You need to tell them. No, we're not here because we're righteous. We're here because we're sinners. We plead to God. Now, God is changing us, right? We have godly desires and we're seeing the blessing of God on our life. But that's that's a that's something that's been growing after our faith. But, but when you come and, and believe and just be among us and trust in the Lord that God will change your life as well. But that order is important, that it's salvation first and then sanctification or 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 coming to him and then a change. And then Paul talks about the change in verse chapter six and seven about sanctification. Chapter six is the call how we should die to sin totally. And chapter seven shows us the real struggle that we have. Chapter seven, verse 22, I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is the reality of being a Christian. Delighting in God and his law, but, but seeing with our flesh our struggle there. What's so good about Romans is it shows this struggle right here in preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is not just about, hey, we're saved from our sin. No, it's also about what God's going to do. I was going to change us and conform us. Unless we fall into despair. Chapter 8 speaks about our security in him, that we will not be condemned in our sin if we believe because he's forgiven us. In fact, it says in chapter eight, verse one, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what God began in us, he'll bring to completion. Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will glorify us. 
his plan of, of who he predestined times past. He's calling us and justifying us in time and in the future will glorify us so much so that he has its past tense. We are glorified. What God began, he will complete. And God is glorified in us. God is glorified through us. And that really brings us back to the last point here this morning about glory. Verse, so, go, so back ahead to 16, right? The, the glory, the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's important this glory comes through Jesus. Because it's the gospel, right? That, that it's through Jesus that ultimately God gets all his glorious. We, by grace, will be in heaven with him forever. It's through the gospel, then, again, verse 25, that we are strengthened to give God glory. Paul's heart of praise to God, though, is bigger than just our individual salvation. Because when he's talking here about, about what strengthens us, yes, it's my gospel and the, the teaching of, of Jesus Christ. But he, but he also expands here to, to God's plan. God's plan that, that isn't just to the Jews and just isn't through the Old Testament sacrifices, but now is, is, is through Christ. You see this revelation in verse 25 that, that was a mystery that, that for... For time was, was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. In these verses, Paul's given a, a bigger plan of Jews and Gentiles coming together, walking together in obedience of faith. The culmination of God's saving plan is for all the nations and see, that ties it into the purpose of Romans. So he wants to write to them because it's not just for you in Rome, right? You in the church, but it's also for those outside the church. And it's also for those in Spain who need to hear the gospel. He says, I'm done preaching here wherever I am. I've been in Asia Minor and, and I've been in Macedonia. And now I got to go on. I'm going to Rome and then I'm going to go on. And that's the idea here. The glory of all these things that for long ages, it, it was a it was a common sea religion. Come and see what, what God does in his temple. But now it's a, a go, show, and tell. It, it's now getting out is what Paul is getting at here with, with the gospel. The message wasn't understood in ages past, how the, the Messiah would come. Jews thought he was going to come for Israel. And, and he did come for Israel, but it was bigger. And the Jews thought he was going to come and restore the kingdom. The disciples thought that. But it's, it's different. He's going to come and suffer and die and then later be glorified. And how the Messiah then would bring all nations together. And the Gentiles, when they heard it, ought to rejoice. After we go through Proverbs, we're going to go through the book of Acts. I've been working my mind to memorize a, a bunch of Acts. And I've been in Acts 13 this past couple of weeks about how, how when the Jews <clears throat> turned away from the gospel, Paul said, since you thrust the gospel aside... And judge yourselves unworthy eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? These, these Gentiles believed because the word now came to them that it wasn't just to the Jews. It's to the Jew first, Romans 1.17. But then it expands beyond that to Gentiles. And we actually today are the fruit of that. Comes to us in Loves Park, Illinois. And with the coming of Jesus, this, this mystery that was hidden before was kept secret, 
But now through Jesus, verse 26, it's, it's been disclosed. And, and the, the apostles then saw how the prophetic writings spoke about this gospel that was coming to all the nations. That, that, that it was the eternal plan of God that the gospel would come to the Gentiles, even preaching the gospel to Abraham. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Abraham, through the Jews, comes salvation to the ends of the earth. But the Jews didn't understand that. The disciples didn't understand that. But it's been known through Jesus, as he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That's what he said. And now they, they understand this is eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is simply sanctification or salvation, faith, obedience, sanctification. That's, that's the obedience of faith that even he, Paul talked about in, in chapter 1, um, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What Paul wanted was to see all nations trusting in the Lord and obeying and following after that. That's why he's eager to preach the gospel. Right? Because it's not for Jewish people, it's for, for Gentiles as well. And we need to go, we need to, we need to talk, we need to spread the news to other people. Andy said, if they're, they're kids in your neighborhood, maybe kids you know, right? bring them to vacation Bible school. That's a, that's a good in. It's opportunities to go out speaking with people. In my very first message, the book of Romans, I told of a, a conversation that took place between two pastors. I'm not sure if you remember this conversation that I told. This would have been three years ago. If you do, you've got a, a sharp mind. You're an elephant. You can't forget anything. The conversation went something like this. One pastor asked another how his church was doing. The pastor says, doing great. I just finished preaching the book of Romans. To which the other pastor said, oh, and how did it change your church? Is your church more evangelistic today than it was before? To which place the, the, the pastor's face sunk. And he was confused. And he said, what, how is that? What, what do you mean, more evangelistic? He said, well... Missions and evangelism are the heart of the book of Romans. And how any proper exposition of the book should propel the church with zeal towards evangelism and outreach. And the pastor was discouraged because he had just spent three years and 96 messages preaching through Romans without that heart. Too concerned about a focus on the wonderful doctrines that he missed the heart. And that that I mentioned three years ago, I, I hope God has changed us. I hope God has stirred us to outreach. That's why we're going to head to the book of Acts, just to stir a, an outreach heart to, to people. And, and I know that's my hope and, and, and my heart as we worked our way through Romans, that God would stir us with the gospel, to be eager to speak with others, their friends or neighbors or relatives. He even had a, I had a conversation this past week with my neighbor, um, He's kind of asked how things are going to church. I told him through Romans and we're preaching through this book. And he was just, you know, inquisitive of that. And he just kind of said, I, you know, it just really scares me that maybe I'm not a Christian. You know, and so we had an opportunity to speak about Matthew 7 and what, what God really changed me. That there are many people who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, let me in. And I'll turn them away. And I said, I, ne I never grew up in a church that, that warned people, that confronted with that. And God, God just changed me in that. And, and just had an opportunity to have a biblical conversation with a a friend of mine with a, a neighbor of ours. Right? We're going to invite some kids in our neighborhood to vacation Bible school. Just having a heart. Just would pray also. Just as, as people are coming out of their dens this summertime. If Romans has changed you, you will go and be with them and spend time with them. 
and seek to encourage them and talk with them about Christ. Here's what I said in my first sermon. I'm quoting, quote, I'm praying for God to stir my own heart towards evangelism, towards being bold to speak with others about Christ, that we might finish with the book of Romans and that we might be stirred to evangelism in greater ways than ever before. I just hope that happens. Hope that happened. Hope that will happen. Just opportunities come. There are opportunities for you. Vacation Bible school there. Maybe even art of parenting. Maybe you want to invite someone. Maybe some people you know who are struggling with their parenting. Maybe some neighbors. It's a real easy thing to maybe invite them in. Um, so I know I sought to do that. Kids Club has given opportunities. Even speaking with one of the, the parents from Kids Club last Thursday. It was our last Kids Club. Just ask, talking to them about coming to church and coming to be around. Their child loves it. And, and maybe them as well. They might come and just, just be blessed. Have you been changed by the book of Romans? I think the key to changing is one word. Maybe two words. I've kind of skipped it here in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to... What do you say? My gospel. He says, this is my gospel. Now, now it's not that Paul says, okay, this is my gospel, and you might have another gospel. That's not what he's saying. There's only one gospel, right? Christ come, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, buried, raised for our sins according to the Scriptures, appearing to the disciples, alive and well afterwards, and believing and walking in Him. That's, that's the gospel, but Paul calls it my gospel. You will never be eager to preach the gospel until the gospel becomes your gospel. Until you can say it's my gospel. Not, that's not just God saying, let's not, well, I, I believe this. Right? But it's more, have I embraced it? So it's, it's mine. I've not just believed the gospel. I believe my gospel. This, this, is, this is mine. Right? That, that I am all in on this. I've turned from my sin. I've trusted. This is, this is my only hope right here. And when that becomes your hope, you'll be eager to preach the gospel as, as Paul was. It's a great transition even to the Lord's Supper where we can just examine our hearts and our minds just before the Lord as we think about this gospel. Is it, is it your gospel? Have you embraced it? And the Lord's Supper is really an opportunity to say, whether it's to come in repentance, come in belief and trust, to eat the bread and to, to drink the cup. Not again, to, to, to get righteous in any ways, but an expression that just says, God, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you. So let me pray and we'll sing some songs. We'll pass out the bread and then we'll pass out the cup. And just even once you bow your heads and just, just think about your own heart, examine it before the Lord. Just see if, if, if Christ is your all, if this is your gospel. You really believe it. You're really trusting in Jesus and his work alone. Trusting him to make you righteous. Trusting in him even to give you the zeal to be like the Apostle Paul. To be eager to preach the gospel to others. Just have you examine that where you are. And if today you're, you're not a believer, you're not trusting in Jesus, I just encourage you to let the let the bread and the cup pass because this is for those who believe and trust. It's, a, it's an expression that just says, God, I, I'm trusting you with my heart. Maybe, maybe there are sins you need to repent of. just encourage you now even to, to turn from those, to pledge and say, God, I need, I, I just need your grace. And I'm trusting in you. I'm not living perfectly, oh God, but, but I'm trusting in you. 
Because that's not, not our message. Our, our message isn't that we live perfectly. Our message is Romans 7, that we struggle. Our message is that we desire to live sinlessly, Romans 6. We desire to be dead to sin with all of our heart. And so, Father, I would pray as we finish this Magna Carta of the Christian life, now this great gospel book has Jesus and his mission at the center of it. God, I pray that each of us would be on mission for Jesus, pursuing after him, loving him, and our, our taking the bread and drinking the cup is an expression of our, uh, of our desire to be on that mission, God, with you and for you. And for your glory, God. And I would pray, God, really as a fruit of Romans, that we would be more evangelistic. We would be more outreaching than we ever have been before. God, that you by your grace would even provide tangible fruit from that. People would be saved and even come to this church as a result of our testimony, our witness of, of sharing the good news of Christ with them. God, we need your grace in these times and in these days. God, be with us here as we commune with you in a, in a special way that we do um, every four to six weeks. God, just expressing our love for you, expressing our dependence upon you. God, that you died for us. May we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.